And so I think the most well-known example that's kind of seeped into popular culture a little bit is this idea that there's different words for um, orienting in space. So in the West, a lot of Western cultures would use left or right, um, whereas in uh, many other languages, they would never refer to left or right. They would always refer to cardinal directions. And so you wouldn't say, um, I'm sitting to the left of you. You might say, I'm sitting to the west of you. Uh, and so this was just, I think, really, really interesting and just provocative to start thinking about, you know, why we assume that our um, perspective is dominant and how to challenge that uh, in ourselves. And, and, and that really was, I think, also why I wanted to travel. I think travel is a way of challenging, you know, our own assumptions and our own um, conviction that our perception is somehow um, the only the only way of seeing the world. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is Maura O'Connor, a journalist who writes about the politics and ethics of science, technology, and conservation. Her work has appeared online in The New Yorker, Nautilus, and Foreign Policy. She's a graduate of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and a former MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellow. She's the author of two books, Resurrection Science, Conservation, De-Extinction, and the Precarious Future of Wild Things, and her latest book, which she's here to talk about today, Wayfinding, The Science and Mystery of How Humans Navigate the World. Mauro, welcome to Science for the People. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So what drew you to the topic of human navigation and wayfinding in the first place? Well, I think I'm exactly like most people. Um, you know, as a journalist um, in graduate school, running around a city, um, trying to chase news stories, and I um, got the first generation of smartphone that came out, and it just became the way that I got around. You know, the ability and the convenience of being able to input a destination into your phone and then be given directions of how to get there. It's just incredible. It's such a so easy, such a leap for me and and most people, I think. Um, but then, sort of maybe about five or six years after I first got a smartphone, I was actually traveling through a really rural area of New Mexico and decided to use my um, GPS device to get to this hot springs and you know the the phone kind of said this is where it is and I followed the directions over these dirt roads and you know finally um, came to a stop when I realized that I had approached the edge of a cliff that was like about 100 feet high and looked over the Rio Grande River and it was such an interesting experience for me you know I was just standing there and it was the first time I kind of stepped back and looked at my phone and I was like why did I sort of trust this device to get me where I wanted to go. Um, you know, this, this device actually has, in a way, no local knowledge um, in the way that if I had stopped and actually asked somebody who was from that place. And that experience stuck with me. I think navigation for me is an interesting topic because it's this thing that I realized I was engaging in every single day, but I'd never really stepped back to ask questions about, like, What's happening in my brain when I try to get from A to B? Um, what is the neuroscience of navigation? And then uh, a couple of years after that experience in New Mexico, um, I started 
realizing that this strategy of even finding your way using a paper map or a compass um, or a smartphone is not universal, that there's different cultures that have developed very different strategies from one another, from one another to uh, wayfind. And those strategies are in response to very different landscapes than um, what I'm used to having grown up in a Western um, culture of roads and signage. And so I just realized as a journalist, like this was a topic that kind of was an umbrella for thinking about all kinds of other interesting things. And that really is what got me on the uh, the trail, so to speak, and thinking about navigation. The book is framed in a series of journeys you took to speak to people from a wide range of backgrounds, both science researchers and a lot of people from remote parts of the world. What made you want to approach the book and this topic in this way? Because there's definitely a book in a lot of conversations with just science researchers on the phone or diving into just the literature, but you did quite a bit of traveling, it seems, to write this book. Yeah, I think, you know, travel has always been one of the motivators for me uh, as a journalist. Um, it was something that, you know, from when I was first sort of romantically conceiving of this career path, I was like, well, I could use it to get places. And and as I began researching navigation itself, the the kind of idea of there being a more fundamental impulse in people and in, in humans to um, to journey uh, became a really interesting theme for me and um, basically also the cultural diversity, the idea that, you know, the realization that mine was not a universal strategy for getting around really felt like a revelation. And so it seemed important to me to be able to actually speak in person to other individuals from communities where those strategies of wayfinding were extremely different in the hopes that perhaps I could just begin to understand, well, what's this other way of getting around the world and how does that influence our perception of the world? How does that influence um, how we think about landscape? Um, and so, you know, I guess the other reason is just that I do really love to travel and I see almost any story I, de- I do or almost any book that I write as an excuse to <laughs> to go places and I try to do that um, as much as I can and bring my kids along with me. Um, certainly my, my older son was around along for the ride um, in quite a few of the places that I visit in this book. I re- as I was reading the book, I was often kind of thinking about the trope of saying the science and art of navigating and wayfinding, especially as the book bounces between the kind of hard science side as you dive into the neuroscience and then shifts perspective and talks to uh, people living in remote communities and deep diving into the sort of culture of navigation that may be built on a long history within their cultures or long um, oral storytelling. And I kept sort of thinking of this and sort of diving back into this idea of the trope of the science and art of something. Um, But Mm. uh, upon reflection, I think it kind of does both the book and the people 
in it a disservice. There's a lot of science in the way many of your non-scientist experts approach their art of navigating. And always good for us science nerds to remember, there's always a lot of art in the way scientists approach their science. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one of the things that I began investigating pretty early on was the idea that a lot of navigation skill and a lot of the sort of master navigators that I was talking to um, focus a lot on empiricism. So the idea that you know the world through your senses and that perception is a way of accumulating knowledge. And then I went to Harvard to sit in on the course of a professor, a physicist um, by the name of John Huth, who teaches this really interesting course mostly to Harvard um, freshmen um, uh, about navigation and how to navigate without the use of technology. And I, at the time, didn't really understand why a physicist was interested in this topic and why students would be taking this course at Harvard. So I went in and I sat in on the class um, quite a bit. And, you know, one of his points was that a lot of education today has become disconnected from the tradition of empiricism in scientific practice, in hypothesis creation. Um, and so for his students, what he saw was a sort of sense of relief almost or, or pleasure in um, thinking about and looking up and at the world around them and being able to look into the sky, identify the stars, um, derive directionality from where the stars are, are placed to, in a sense, know their place in the world um, using their own skills and perception. Um, and, and so that was a seed of something because I kept encountering this idea over and over again that a lot of the navigation skills that some might call primitive because they don't necessarily harness material technologies are actually arguably a kind of scientific practice. Um, they are looking around at the landscape around them. They're, they're in, uh, intuiting and uh, formulating hypotheses about the relationship between different environmental factors, say wind and snow, um, stars and swell, and creating hypotheses about where they are and then testing those by navigating along those routes. And so that became a really fascinating aspect of the book to me. There's definitely science there. I mean, it's the science we all do and I think forget is science, that idea of looking at the world around us, noticing something about it, deciding that perhaps it could mean something and then testing whether or not that assumption is true and then updating our information and our future hypotheses or our future theories or our kind of mental worldview based on that information. And that is effectively science. Right. And I think that, you know, even today, um, you know, a lot of us have really, really silly notions that we've just absorbed about a kind of hierarchy of culture and that somehow material technologies are superior um, to cultures that, that don't necessarily harness the same, the same technologies. Um, and what I started to realize is that a lot of what we do today with our smartphones and, you know, access to the internet and, and so on 
is um, a kind of form of magical thinking. You know, we may be able to access um, tremendous, sophisticated um, information and, and have access to tools that sort of extend our knowledge and reach into the world um, extremely far. And yet, you know, I write in the book, we may as well be handed the weather report from Zeus. Like, it's not like I'm, you know, uh, checking to see, you know, how the meteorologist came up with that forecast. Uh, so that's a kind of form of magical thinking. Whereas, you know, some of the individuals that I spoke to up in the Arctic are able to look at the sky, you know, pay attention to the wind, and then within a context of, of a, a lifetime of experience and, uh, and knowledge, as well as the generational knowledge that was passed down to them, make an accurate weather forecast. So which is the more, you know, <laughs> sort of sophisticated model of, um, you know, empirical thinking or science, scientific practice? Uh, so that became a really interesting tension um, and, you know, was a challenge for me to sort of reconceive of and address some of the really silly kind of conceptions that I have that probably go back to, I don't know, my you know, being in elementary school or something weird. Your book starts and finishes um, with some reflections on what happens when we outsource navigation to gadgets like GPS. Um, there's obvious benefits with GPS. Um, obviously, we can go places a lot faster and a lot farther than we could before. Um, it's really integral to things like airplanes and getting us around the world quickly. Um, but we're also identifying some drawbacks. Uh, like anything, nothing is purely good or purely bad. Yeah, I mean, I tried to approach this topic in a way that people were not going to just think, oh my gosh, she's like a complete Luddite. Um, and th I'm in no way sort of challenging the role of GPS at a kind of societal level, um, as you mentioned, you know, airplanes and banking. And I mean, there's so many ways that GPS is applied um, that makes our lives and society possible. What I was more focused on was um, at the individual level and how GPS impacts us as, as people. And so there's a couple of ways of, of thinking about it. I think GPS is incredibly convenient. And for, for many people who maybe lack confidence to, um, to find their way in the world, GPS is this amazing tool that allows them to go to new places that they might not otherwise have felt confident enough to explore. So that's, that's, that's amazing. And I'm not trying to um, minimize the incredible efficiency and convenience of satellite navigation devices in our pockets. Um, but I do think that the sort of use of our phones as or reliance, I would say, of our phones to get from A to B, um, it does turn our attention kind of away from the world outside of our heads. And there's been many studies that have actually shown that even when you're driving in a car and you're being given turn-by-turn -turn directions by a satellite navigation device, you're actually paying less attention to the world around you. So in a kind of a sense of our engagement as individuals with the landscape around us and arguably with um, the communities and changes in the environment around us, I would say that GPS kind of becomes a more questionable technology. And then the other issue is that we are now 
um, seeing this incredible wealth of of nascent but growing studies that are looking at um, sort of the importance of the hippocampus in human life. So the hippocampus is the part of the brain that is responsible for spatial navigation. It's where we create these internal representations of the space that we've um, explored and traveled through. And it's also the locus of what's known as episodic memory. So that's our memory of the past. It's sort of our our autobiography. And it's really interesting to think about how you remember things and, and what it is about those events that you remember. And they're very often connected to the places that they occurred. And so it's this powerful form of memory that gives us a sense of identity and a sense of um, being an agent in time. It's also the place that we imagine the future. So people who um, lack a hippocampus or suffered from hippocampal damage, maybe they had surgery to treat um, epilepsy, um, or they suffered a kind of traumatic brain injury as they, when they were young, sometimes those individuals actually have a really hard time imagining tomorrow um, or next year. And so what we're seeing is that the hippocampus, if there's atrophy um, or damage to this part of the brain, it's really damaging to to human our human health. And um, so one of the things that they found is that, for instance, in Alzheimer's disease, atrophy in the hippocampus is almost universal, but it's also been shown to be present in uh, conditions like PTSD, depression. And so some of the neuroscientists that I was speaking to in the book were saying, you know, we used to think that uh, hippocampal atrophy was the result of these uh, conditions, but now we're wondering if actually the relationship is sort of reversed. Is atrophy in the hippocampus actually a sort of predictive factor in these conditions? And I think that's really interesting. You know, there's only a handful of studies that are showing um, what sat-navs do to the hippocampus, and none of them have looked at it over a long term. And so I think we should be very cautious. But what we do see is that the hippocampus is basically not engaged at all. It was quite interesting to read some of these sections in your book, especially the ones that talked about the hippocampus and really dove into the link between memory and our ability to navigate, which when you sort of talk about it when I was reading it, it seems so obvious. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. But at the same time, I hadn't really kind of explicitly thought about the connection before. As you said, we can get such visceral memories out of being in a physical location in the same way that a physical location, um, we can remember, you know, there's uh, things like memory trick palace or memory palace tricks where you can remember exactly. a series of arbitrary facts, um, much easier if you can assign them a well-known location and create a path through that location. So there definitely seems to be this, this link between memory and navigation over and above just memorizing a route. Um, and also, this was, I think, made even more interesting and clear to me as you began talking about the links with oral history and the way certain people and certain cultures have really um, 
embedded their ability to navigate and wayfind in oral traditions in songs that are passed down very carefully um, from parent to child within cultures. And that is, is both embedding an idea of navigation in an individual's ability to remember, but also in a culture's ability to remember in a really powerful way. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing um, a neuroscientist said to me was, you know, we don't have a fossil record of the hippocampus. So it's really interesting to see how scientists have been trying to understand like sort of what came first. Did we have this memory capacity that we then as a species began to harness in the service of navigating in search of food and shelter um, and and our communities? Or did we start with this um, sort of navigational hardware, this ability to um, represent space in what, you know, many scientists refer to as the cognitive map? And then we started maybe embedding those places or those maps with meaning, which led to, you know, memories of of the past of where we had been and what happened there and who was there and, you know, and the meaning of it all. And so there's this fascinating narrative, narrative capacity that the hippocampus gives us, but we don't really know sort of the roots of that. Um, and I, I hope we do one day, because I think that question is so interesting because obviously memory is what you know, seems to really, the richness of our memory in particular, you know, the richness of it and the emotion associated with us is such a defining feature of our humanity. Um, and it's really quite different from how other species get from place to place. It's not to say that memory isn't harnessed by other species, but it doesn't seem that there's any examples of a species that's harnessed it to the extent that we have. And furthermore, you know, Clearly, there's no other species that has then sort of used creative um, storytelling and this narrative capacity in the service of creating, you know, strategies for better memorizing routes um, of essentially embedding topographical information into stories so that we can then remember them better. And the best example of that and is about a third of the book almost is uh, Aboriginal song lines. You know, Aboriginal Australians believe that all of the rocks and the trees and gorges and rivers of their landscape was created by their own ancestors who traveled the world in the dream time. And then those journeys are recorded in songs and stories that people learn and memorize. And the song lines are kind of repositories for tremendous amount of cultural information. They're, contain law and ecological knowledge. Um, In the book, what I'm kind of proposing and talking to people about is how they can also be thought of as like literal directions, Um, you know, in those journeys of how the landscape was created by their ancestors is a kind of map of the journey that people can literally follow through space. Um, And so I did actually go to Australia and was able to talk to a few different individuals who, um, you know, who were elders in their community who had inherited their own um, dreaming stories and song lines, and, and they were master navigators. Um, there's a sense that um, 
they sort of are never lost. They're always in familiar territory. In fact, when I asked one woman, you know, what she would do if she got lost in the bush, she kind of like she kind of laughed at me like this was a little bit of a silly question and she entertained me by, you know, explaining what she could do if she didn't know her way, but it was sort of almost unthinkable. It was fascinating to listen to some of the stories of the people you talked to, in particular, the people who are living in some of those remote areas and are on the kind of modern tale of a lot of those oral histories and traditions that have been passed down because their experience of their world is in a few very key ways, very different from, I think, the average person's. The the idea of going out into the middle of the Arctic wilderness in, in, in the middle of winter is, is just something that I think most people would never dream of doing. They would just assume they'd get lost really fast or going out into the open ocean in a small boat or a canoe um, right. without the aid of something like a GPS. And yet there still are people out there who are able to harness and to utilize the knowledge and and the traditions um, and the expertise that they have and they can navigate in some of these spaces that even if with a GPS are treacherous. Right. Yeah, I think that this idea of sort of terra incognita, this idea that there's unknown lands, you know, that there's these vast wildernesses that are unmapped, so to speak, these are all I think ideas that if you if you've grown up in the West in, the, in a sort of Western educational setting, you you inherit them, but they're actually quite historically specific. They come out of of an era of colonialization, of imperialism, and you know the compass and the map, and um, these are tools for exploring unknown places. But only if you're a European traveling into the unknown, um, you know for for communities that are living in Nunavut, which I went to uh, during my research for the book, you know, I might go there and look out and see this, you know, howling wilderness of, of snow and ice and no, you know, um, differentiating features or landmarks. It just all kind of looks the same. And, and that is just not how community members there see the landscape. And in fact, they have names for for, you know, all of it, you know, hundreds and hundreds of place names. Um, and I think the best, one of the best experiences um, I had that showed me this when I was um, traveling at Nunavut, for instance, was that um, I went out with a hunter on a snowmobile and he was showing me these tapered ridges um, that are found behind protrusions on the ground. So if there's a rock, there's this tapered ridge behind it, and it's called Kimigwik, and it's created by the dominant wind. So once you know where the dominant wind comes from in that area, these ridges are like a compass in the ground. And once I realized what I was seeing, I saw the landscape completely differently. It was almost impossible to become disoriented because everywhere you look, you could see these ridges. And so, you know, if I hadn't had that little piece of knowledge, um, I would have not known where I was. And once you have it, you do. And it's such a dramatic shift in perspective. Um, the reason why there's a chapter in the book about psycholinguistics is, um, 
in part because I was so interested in this idea of of cultural and cognitive diversity and the idea that um, depending on the knowledge you have and maybe even the language you speak, um, you might have a very different perception of the world. And as it turns out, um, a lot of the most convincing evidence for this idea that language influences how we see the world comes from these spatial orientation studies, um, a lot of which were taking place in Australia um, in the in the 90s, um, but other places as well. And so I think the most well-known example that's kind of seeped into popular culture a little bit is this idea that there's different words for um, orienting in space. So in the West, a lot of Western cultures would use left or right, um, whereas in uh, many other languages, they would never refer to left or right. They would always refer to cardinal directions. And so you wouldn't say, um, I'm sitting to the left of you. You might say, I'm sitting to the west of you. Uh, and so this was just, I think, really, really interesting and just provocative to start thinking about, you know, why we assume that our um, perspective is dominant and how to challenge that uh, in ourselves. And, and, and that really was, I think, also why I wanted to travel. I think travel is a way of challenging, you know, our own assumptions and our own um, conviction that our perception is somehow um, the only the only way of seeing the world. It's interesting um, reading that part of the book, and I had heard a little bit about the linguistic uh, ideas here between the kind of egocentric view where everything is kind of seen in relationship to your own body versus the kind of more allocentric perspective using cardinal directions um, before. But it also made me think of having lived in a place in North America that was very kind of grid system based. Um, and I right. spent most of my time in a car and and I navigated, I got really good at navigating that city, not by needing to route myself by landmarks, which is how I navigated as a child uh, in a different in a different town, but by just knowing the shape of the grid and understanding in which direction right. I was pointed at any time, because that was a really useful sense for me to have given that navigation, as long as I knew which direction I was pointing and had some overarching sense of the sort of key thoroughfares that would get me through large chunks of the city quickly. I didn't really need a map or a GPS. I could get an address of where I was and an address of where I needed to go and I could get my way there, uh, which I found to be once I sort of figured it out and developed that sense of of navigating in that kind of north, south, east, west way, um, really powerful. And then I moved over to the UK where I've lost that kind of North American grid system and I've had to readapt to the navigation of my childhood, which is very different because the streets here don't form nice, neat grids direct, you know, pointed in a certain direction that are, that is easy to follow. At least most cities don't. Um, and right. so it's been quite interesting because I feel like I've lost some of that sense. I sort of gained a right. sense of always knowing in that, in, in Edmonton where, where I live lived, um, what direction I was facing almost all of the time. And now in the UK, I've really lost that I, I once again have to navigate purely sort of by landmark and, and my familiarity with the space. And I, I don't really have to think so much now in which direction I'm pointing, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it sounds like you were doing a lot of 
wayfinding work maybe more than most people undertake uh, when you were in Edmonton and using that um, that strategy of sort of generally knowing the direction and then being able to to find routes to get there. Um, and you know, London famously uh, is <laughs> extremely complex, and you know, um, there's this uh, kind of seminal navigation neuroscience paper about London taxi drivers um, showing how this ability to accumulate the knowledge, which is literally the map of London in your brain, actually leads to a greater volume in the gray matter of of the hippocampus. Um, so it's, you know, it's very interesting that you're having that experience firsthand. I think a lot of anthrop- anthropology and even some neuroscience um, has gotten caught up in trying to categorize um, cultures and wayfinding strategies by this egocentric versus allocentric strategy. And there's this notion that perhaps one culture is one and another culture is another. Um, and I think from my research, what I um, have found is that a lot of what makes humans potentially great navigators and and really successful navigators is an ability to switch between one and the other. But there certainly is a sense that this allocentric perspective, this idea that we have a bird's eye view of um, our surroundings and we're using that so-called cognitive map um, to find our way is really um, a a very much a, a cultural invention and that the, even the words that we use to describe how we navigate, like using a map in the brain, are more influenced by culture than perhaps the neuroscience even supports. And that in some cultures, there is much more of this reliance on the egocentric perspective of, of having a route. And you know that, you know, when you leave your door, you're going to see the oak tree and past the oak tree is... Um, you know, the elementary school and past the elementary school is a, is a lake and so on and so forth. And so you're really, there's this narrative sequence that you're following, which some people describe to me more as almost humming a tune or following a melody than this idea of referring to a cognitive map in the brain to then infer, you know, <laughs> your Euclidean position in space. And then um, I think the most interesting um one of the most interesting anthropologists I was able to talk to in the book is a man by the name of Tim Ingold. And he has kind of disbelieved the cognitive map theory completely. And he said wayfinding is this skilled performance in which a navigator is feeling their way towards a goal. They're adjusting their movements in response to changes in the perception. And he calls it knowing as we go, not knowing before we go. And when you were describing your strategy of, of kind of getting away around Edmonton, I mean, yes, in a sense, it's a grid, so it's very rational and logical, but the way you were feeling your way to where you need to go reminded me of that, um, of that strategy. It's interesting because I can pinpoint a specific 
point in my life in which my strategy changed. Um, and that mm-hmm. was when I drove, I, for about nine months, I drove a delivery car. I, I drove deliveries. And so I needed to go to a series of addresses in a kind of broad region of the city in a vehicle. And I needed to do it as efficiently as possible so I could come back and get more things to deliver. Um, and when you're, when you do that, and at, certainly at that period of time, I imagine these days, if I were doing that same job, there might actually be a GPS that I was supposed to farm that out to figuring out what the best best route was. Um, But in particular, um, at that at that period of time, I I had one, I had a map, I looked at it, I had a, a phone with a GPS so that I had that for reference if I needed it. But there wasn't the kind of infrastructure set up for me to be able to get turn by turn direction. So I had to just figure it out. And sometimes inevitably, uh, when you spend eight hours a day driving, um, you very quickly realize that uh, there's traffic, there's construction, there's road closures, there's all kinds of stuff that can thwart your carefully planned uh, route that you may have set up before you you got started and wrote notes on. So I learned quite quickly that the best way was to actually understand how the logic of the street went and to right. always be able to just kind of figure it out as I went. Um, and then once I learned that, it was very freeing because I didn't need a map anymore. Someone could just give me an address and I'd be like, yep, I know where that is. Enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that what I've come to realize is GPS is just this really perfect tool for many of our our lives in a very modern society. So it's a tool that's perfectly equipped for, say, driving on highways, um, you know, or um, maybe navigating congested city um, city streets where you have like a traffic report, and um, and and also because we now are so concerned with efficiency and with time and not wasting time and and getting places faster and faster. And so in a way, you know, I think GPS sort of reflects this condition of modern life where we're sort of obsessed with these, these things. And and when it comes to travel, we sort of less and less um, maybe are interested in, in the journey itself, I would say, you know, it's, it's kind of about getting there. Um, And so I think that is a little bit unfortunate. You know, I, I think, um, there is a kind of consequence of that where we are commodifying our experience and, and GPS becomes, um, a way of, of doing that. Um, you know, and again, I don't want to totally minimize how effective, you know, it is and how convenient it is. What I've sort of sought to do in my own, um, personal life is I, still have my smartphone with me. I take it out um, often to use it as a map and I put it away uh, once I've seen, you know, the map or once I've seen what the algorithm recommends as a route and then maybe I don't follow it. Maybe I follow my own route, what I would consider better. Um, And so, yeah, I put it away and I try not to refer to it again. And I think it's a way for me to sort of assert some independence and autonomy um, from this device and actually really consciously sort of utilize my own wayfinding skills to challenge this fear of wasting time, of, of getting lost. Um, you know, interesting like navigation 
is full of terms and, and words that in a way we can, we use them as metaphors already. You know, so I think this idea of being open to the path less traveled, you know, of, of focusing on the journey and not the destination, these things kind of sound like, like cliches, but I've actually found that they're quite powerful and, 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 and evocative for thinking about and reassessing our experience in the world and our perception of the world outside of our heads. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, in the research and the work that you've done investigating some of this and, and trying to understand where the science is on some of this, and obviously there's still uh, a lot we don't know and some, some of this stuff is, is at the moment correlational and we're not sure uh, how causal it is. Yes. So we know that there, there has been some research into potentially some of the drawback impacts of gadgets and relying on maps and GPS as a form of navigation. Has there been any research that you're aware of into what's happening in our brains? Because typically, I mean, typically, if the brain's not expending energy or cycles doing one thing or pressing out in one area of the brain, it's likely focusing its energy or efforts doing something else. So is there any idea sort of while we're zoned out on autopilot following a GPS um, to get from A to B, is our brain currently busy uh, sort of adapting to some other piece of modern life? Are there, I, I'm just trying to, you know, usually there's, there's something our brain is probably doing while it's not doing something else. Yeah, exactly. No, that is, that's absolutely the case. And, and basically there are several different circuits in the brain that can be used in navigation. And they correspond to different strategies. So the one that's um, most important and that we've been discussing and I've been describing is spatial learning. So it's learning to navigate using the relationships between landmarks. And that all takes place in the hippocampus. Um, and that's through all of these different types of cells that activate and fire, so to speak, as we move through space. And when we return to a place we've already been, these cells are firing in the same pattern and they are the ones that are in a sense formulating this, this cognitive map or this internal representation of space. Um, and once we have that representation, we can create novel routes um, to any destination from any starting position in that environment. And that's what's called the allocentric perspective. It, that's what's like having a kind of bird's eye view of the environment. And then there's this, other strategy that involves a circuit um, in the brain called the caudate nucleus. And this one is really about habits. It's how we get around to really familiar places. And it is kind of like autopilot. It signals to us to turn right and then left in response to a cue without us really having to like pause and consciously refer to this internal representation and retrieve a memory to figure it out. And there's a kind of, I think, evolutionary explanation for having this other strategy, which is that it really allows us to travel along familiar routes and relieve some of the mental effort that it takes. Um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to have to um, focus all of your mental effort onto getting to the supermarket that you go to on the corner, you know, of your street every single day. Um but what's interesting is that we use one strategy over the other, but never both at the same time. And the more we use one, the less we use the other. 
So that caudate nucleus strategy is what's called the response strategy. And people who rely on it have been shown to have more gray matter in the caudate nucleus. Um, and what's also interesting is they've, neuroscientists have found as we age, we seem to use a hippocampal spatial strategy less and less. We start re- relying more and more on habits to get around. Um, and so I think, you know, this kind of research showing it, um, you know, it's just proving once again, the brain is kind of a muscle and the different strategies that we use to get from place to place really can, can influence um this part of the brain and these different strategies. And the question becomes, um, you know, what are the consequences of that? And that's really where I think we need more, more studies. We need more research um, to really show, you know, for instance, if we do rely on a GPS to give us turn by turn directions, and that's an important distinction. Um, it's not using a GPS as a map. It's using it to say, now take a left, now take a right. It's when it relieves you completely of the need to create your own spatial representation. You know, what what are the long-term consequences of that? Um, and I think in particular for young people, and that's uh, a lot of the book focuses on sort of the consequences of, of relying on um, devices um, on young people and uh, this idea that the hippocampus kind of develops throughout um, uh, pe- you know, your young life from when you're an infant um, to when you're a young adult and what the consequences would be of having sort of li- limited independence and autonomy autonomy to explore space on your own, um, but also perhaps relying on a device to find your way instead of your own skills and, and memory. I find the idea of a GPS um, after reading the book is connecting to another um, semi-common thing I find here, in particular now that I'm in a place that I didn't grow up in. I don't have deep memories of the places I'm living or the places I visit in the same way that I did of the place um, that I, I spent, you know, the first 34 years of my life in. Um, and that is here, I tend to more often, um, if we're in London, if I'm in London with my uh, partner, he knows London very well, certainly some parts of it very well. And I just kind of blindly follow him. He knows where he's going. Uh, we get off the underground and he gets us to where we need to go. And I find quite often in the same way that I autopilot or tune out with a GPS, I can quite often tune out with him because I've, I know he'll get us to where we're going. So I don't really have to pay attention to the details of the world because I know I'm not going to be on the hook for navigating my way in or out of anything. Um, and I do find that um, the times when I am most able to navigate well is when I know it's on me to find our way somewhere. I know that it's my job to get us somewhere or to get us back. Um, and that's when I always do a better job, whether it's out in the countryside on a walk or in the middle of, you know, the middle of West End London. I kind of treat a GPS like that person who's taking you by the hand and taking you to that spot you want to go to. And you don't really, you don't really pay attention to what you've seen. I have memories of walking in London on cold days when I don't want to have my phone in my hand so much because my hands are cold. I want to keep my hands in my pocket. Um, And on those days, I have to sort of refer to the map quickly and then shove it away and just 
sort of, you know, use it as a guide rather than a turn by turn um, direction. And some of my most enjoyable walks through London have been on the coldest days. Right. Yeah, I think one of the problems with GPS is that when you use it, um, you sort of you remember less, you're paying less attention. And so then you kind of need it again the next time. And so there's almost like this feedback loop of the more you use it, the more you need it. And I think with navigation, the stakes kind of matter. So, you know, if you're alone in an unknown place, you're kind of going to be paying more attention um, because maybe the stakes are a little bit higher. Um, imagine if you're like out on a snowmobile or a dog sled on sea ice and there's no rocks, there's no trees. Um, there's not even really any sort of, you know, mountains or anything that could be considered a landmark um, and you have to find your way back to your community or, you know, <laughs> the stakes become incredibly high and, and, and making a navigational error in that context um, isn't just about, you know, kind of enjoying oneself. It's, it could mean, you know, the, the difference between life and death. And so I, I did talk to one neuroscientist who kind of suggested that getting lost is good. And I don't mean to say that you know, going out into the middle of a wilderness and, and willfully getting lost is smart. And it's not. And any of the master navigators I was able to talk to would laugh at that idea. <laughs> but what she was, you know, pointing to is that a lot of our daily lives are spent in a kind of habit mode. Um, and that when you get lost, it actually makes you kind of look up and pay attention and engage more and engage this part of um, our brain that she believes based on her research is incredibly um, essential to our mental health um, and cognitive health. And so I think that's a fascinating idea. Um, there's this whole other strain in, in sort of re different religious traditions too of, of sort of getting lost opening you up in ways that if you didn't, you, you wouldn't really find your true way. And I think those ideas become really interesting and powerful in this context. You know, the idea that um, you were lost and then you're found and, and there's a one true path. And there's all of these different metaphors and religious traditions that sort of evoke a kind of similar sentiment that somehow there's value for us as as people to open ourselves up and to the new and the unknown. I, uh, I'm, I'm sort of smiling to myself because this reminds me of a, of, of something my dad has always done and that I know I do, which is there's, you know, the sort of well-worn routes from point A to point B. Um, typically places you go all the time to school, to work, to friends' yeah. houses, to, um, grandparents' houses, that kind of thing. And, uh, I have many memories of being in the back seat and, uh, my dad would be driving and he, decide to go home a different route. And my mom would turn to him and say, why are you going this way? And he'd be, I don't know, felt like a good way to go. Um, and sometimes he'd go every once in a while, he'd just go like a really weird way, like not an established one of the three established ways, but a really kind of weird out there. Why on earth would you go this way? And he'd be like, 
we're going on the scenic route. We're going to go and, and have a little adventure, right? And it would be like a five minute tack on to a, a car ride. But, um, that kind of, I think as a kid always sort of delighted me that little back and forth between my parents. Um, my dad's kind of willingness to sort of, at the time, I think it struck me as a bit whimsically, um, go mm-hmm. a different route or a different way. It was, you know, longer. There was no clear advantage to it just because. And I find myself as an adult sometimes in particular times when there is no time crunch on me and um and I, I get that feeling of just like I'm gonna go a different way home or I've not been down this road yet I'm gonna go down this road and see where it goes um and I it, it reminds me of our conversation is reminding me of of those conversations that I I overheard in the back seat of the car but also that own draw that I have sometimes to just explore new places and be like hmm, I wonder where this goes yeah, I think it's such an indication. I, that story is very sweet. I, it makes me smile too. And I think it's such an indication of how um, anxious we are and um, concerned about efficiency these days. That that idea of of just saying, "Oh, I'm just going to take a different route today and see see what happens," feels like a luxury, yeah. <laughs> some special some special thing. Um, I think that one of the aspects of childhood that is really special and maybe even precious is that um, experience of open-ended kind of exploration and that process of creating memories um, in the places that you live um, with the people that you have relationships with. And, and when we're children, those become really important and kind of tie us to each other and to to other people and um they're quite emotional and what's interesting is that um I've had conversations with with friends of mine who describe and can describe quite clearly the places that they went to as children but then really struggle to drive, you know, across Los Angeles, a city that they've lived in for for 10 years. And so I think there is this sort of process as we as we are older, but especially today where we're sort of less and less inclined to um, to have that sense of open ended exploration and to sort of invest our time and energy into into doing that. I think the neuroscience is sort of supporting this idea that as we age our navigational abilities decline as well. There's um, fascinating research coming out of um, University College London and Hugo Spears' laboratory where um, he's amassing data from this video game called Sea Hero Quest, which is really um, just an orientation game. Um, he's sort of massed as an adventure. And, you know, millions of people have played this game. And by looking at all the data, he's kind of shown that sort of almost like by the age of 19, our navigational skills peak. And then after that, they just slowly decline, which is quite sad. But um, but that just shows how as we age, you know, it really does change. And, and childhood does seem to be this period where we're accumulating experience, we're accumulating uh, spatial maps, and we're tying emotion and, and meaning to those places um, through our memories. 
Maura, it's an excellent book. And uh, thank you very much for popping on and talking to me about it. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, what a joy. It was really fun. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Maura O'Connor, her writing or her books, including Wayfinding, the science and mystery of how humans navigate the world, we'll have links for all those things available for you in the show notes for this episode, which, as per usual, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Science for the people.